0: Father God thank you for today uh, thank you that we have the ability to gather in this space together as a community of believers God we just pray for your continue uh, continued uh, guidance in how we we love each other well how we lo- grow closer to you and grow closer to each other because of that God we want to pray just now as we um, as we approach your your scripture we approach a piece of scripture um, that uh, that has been misunderstood a lot and, and has caused some strange beliefs, uh, but also when we actually understand it is very convicting. And so, God, I pray that, that as we dive into to this section of Revelation, Lord, that we can hear your voice in it, uh, that you can lead us and guide us to where, um, where you want us to go. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> So this morning, we're going to be continuing our series on Revelation. I hope you've been enjoying it. Um, to, for, for me, it's been one of the most fun ones. We Most fun ones? That's a weird way to say it. It's been a lot of fun, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, I've really appreciated and enjoyed learning all of the different things that I've got to learn through this series, and I hopefully you have too. Um, if this is your first week in this series, you've missed a lot already, unfortunately. You can actually listen back to them online if you want. Um, What we've been trying to do is we've been trying to pull back the curtain a little bit on the Book of Revelation. Revelation is uh, is one of those books that uh, is is a strange one. Uh, If you've ever read through Revelation, you know that there are a lot. There's a lot of weird imagery in the book. There's a lot of weird things that go on, Uh, and and because of that, it's one of the books that's been the most misunderstood in the entire Scripture. There are there are only two books in Scripture written in the particular style called apocalyptic literature. the first book is the book of Daniel. It's actually the second half of Daniel. You'll get the same weird imagery there. It's written in apocalyptic literature, and then obviously the book of Revelation. What we see in the in this apocalyptic literature is this idea that, that a lot of the ideas are expressed through metaphor, they're expressed through imagery, they're expressed through these vivid, uh, kind of over the top uh, explanations of things. But as we've been walking through it, we realize that that. The goal of Revelation, stated right at the beginning by the Apostle John, was that the words of the prophecy, the words of the the letter that he wrote, would be heard and then been carried out, practiced. Uh, Meaning that the original audience was supposed to hear the words that John wrote and actually do something with them meaning they weren't supposed to be this cryptic map of the future only, this, this cryptic idea that if we could just put the puzzle pieces together, we'll know how the world ends. There's something that we're supposed to take from it in the present. And that's what we've been doing each week. We've shown that, that some of the imagery that we've made into these really strange things was completely understandable to the people at the time. The image that we've used each and every week is the image of the Chicago Bulls, right? If I were to talk about a group of bulls from Chicago, you would all know what I'm talking about because you know basketball, you understand how that works. You transport 2,000 years into the future where Chicago might not even be a place anymore and the imagery can get really weird really quick. You might think I'm talking about actual cows instead of a basketball team. And so we've seen that every single week as we've walked through these particular books. The goal of doing that is that we realize that, that, that John is writing into a political and, and, and um, social atmosphere that, that, though isn't identical to what we're in right now, is similar in many ways. Right? We're writing, into the, uh, writing to a church that's being oppressed by the empire, the empire of Rome. Um, and giving them hope, giving them direction, convicting them in some of the areas that they need to to learn in, and we're going to see that again today in a big way. Actually, I am really excited about about this particular passage today uh, because it's actually one I was probably the most familiar with before diving into it, and it was probably the one I misunderstood the most. So both of those things happened at the same time. Um, today we're going to be looking at the city of Laodicea. So. Often, when the book of Revelation gets taught, this is one of those passages that will get taught. Um, growing up, it's one that was taught in youth group. I heard it actually sermons from it from, in church as well. Um, and, and it was always a strange passage for me, and let's actually read it so that we can kind of break down why it was strange. This is the, the passage from Revelation 3. To the angel in the church Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and you can have salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and eat with them and they will with me. To those who are victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How many of you have heard this passage before? Yeah? It's one we talk about often. In in a youth group back in the day, that was taught in the way that was said, either you're all in for God, or you might as well just hate him, be all out. Because if this middle space is God's going to come out, spit you out. And for me, that always <laughs> rubbed me the wrong way, right? Because if you really think about what that's saying, it's weird, isn't it? It's, God, it's essentially saying that God is saying either you are all in, you love me with all your heart, or you might as well just hate me because that's better than somehow wrestling in that middle space. That's a weird thing, isn't it? We would never say that to our kids, right? That, 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 I, that unless you're all in, I'm going to reject you entirely. That's, that's not something we would do as human parents. Why would God do that then? What does it mean to be spit out of his mouth? Does he really, would he really rather have us hate him than wrestle in that middle space within, than kind of figure out what's going on? But that's the way it was always taught, and I was worried. Am I all in, or am I going to get spewed out someday? The interesting thing is, though, as we start to read this passage, we realize that on the, on one, uh, that, that is absolutely not what it's saying, that, that God doesn't want you to, be, to hate him rather than be in this middle space. But what we'll also see is it ends up being more convicting than we, than we thought in the first place as well. In order to understand it, though, we actually have to take a look at the city of Laodicea itself. Now, we actually only began to excavate Laodicea relatively recently. About 2003 is when we started to excavate the site. And as we do, we've learned some incredibly fascinating things about the city that shed a ton of light on this particular passage. Actually, Wally from Walker Harbor Church a extended visit to the city of Laodicea and, and really the whole Turkey region. He actually has a number of pictures from the site, if we want to throw those up, Carter. Um, he was able to go there and see some of the things that are being excavated and see some of the, the amazing things in that particular city. There's, there's some of the ruins right there. Um, this is kind of a cool one because they have a glass uh, ceiling over top of the excavation site, and you can see some really cool things there. So he's actually visited there, and we we'll are actually to see a number of pictures from his journey there because it'll help us understand where we are. Uh, But Laodicea has a long history in the Greek and Roman worlds, right? It was originally called uh, Diospolis, which is the city of Zeus. So it used to be the city of Zeus. And it continued to grow until it caught the eye of Antiochus II, who was a Greek ruler, and he changed its name to, uh, to, uh, to, to honor his wife Laodice in 260 BCE. So now the city becomes a prominent part under him, under the Greek spate. But it's in this middle space, right? It's kind of prominent. It's got. It's kind of successful. It's a. It it has. It's been renamed to honor uh, a queen, and and yet it's not in the upper echelon of cities that it desires to be. So Laodicea begins to grow. Uh, It wants to be. It's it's located in a really strategic location. Um, and so Rome utilizes that it, along its major trade route, and it becomes a bigger player on the world stage. It ups its ante a little bit. It works to become a wealthy city, and inside of the city of Laodicea, they have this desire to be a player on the world stage. That's what they're aiming for. They have a, self, a, a, self, a city pride um, that they want to become cities, a city like Ephesus or, like, uh, or like, uh, like Rome, some of these bigger cities that have a more prominent part in the Roman world. And so they work on that. And they have an opportunity to elevate their, their status in 26 AD, under the reign of the emperor Tiberius. Now, Tiberius was looking for a city to be his city, the center of Tiberius worship. We've talked about this in previous weeks. Roman emperors believed that they were gods, and so what they would do is they would actually uh, choose a city to be their city, their, their temple city, the city that was dedicated to worshiping them. We saw, when we looked at the city of Ephesus, we saw that that was the city Domitian picked to be his particular city. Well, Tiberius was looking for a city to become his city, and he had narrowed it down to ten. Ten prominent cities in the Roman world that could become his. And as you probably already guessed, Laodicea was on that short list of ten. Now we know from their writings that they really, really desired to be the temple city of, uh, of Tiberias um, because there was a lot of good things that would come along with that. One, you got the prominence of being the emperor's city, but two, you would also then become incredibly wealthy. The emperor would pour money into your city to build temples, to build monuments, to build other things, and people would come to your city to visit those particular monuments. So you, became, you would become a wealthy city really quickly. Well, as Tiberius was searching for his particular space and Laodicea thought that they deserved to be that place, he ended up not choosing them. They lost out to Smyrna, which actually is the city Jeremy taught on last week, and they were told that they were overlooked for having a lack of resources and wealth. Or in other words, in the eyes of Rome, Laodicea was rejected for being too poor. Now, this was a massive disappointment for the city, especially a city that's trying to make a name for itself on the world stage. And we can tell from their writings that they took it personally. It's actually at this particular point, the point in which they're passed over to be the emperor's city, where things in Laodicea get really, really interesting. You see, the cities of Colossae in Hierapolis, uh, they formed this little triangle. I think we actually have have a slide with that circled up there, Carter, too, if you want to throw that up. So you have the cities of Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea are in this kind of tri- uh, triad right there. And, and they did, so you can see it right there circled on the bottom right corner of your map. Now each of those cities had a, had a major feature that contributed to their thriving. Uh, and they were also able to work together in that space. Just outside of Colossae is Mount Cadmus. I have a picture of that on the next slide here too. Uh, Mount Cadmus is a, is a mountain just outside of Colossae, and, and it gets a lot of snow on the top. You can actually see the snow right there. Uh, uh, and that snow would melt, and it would go down into the city, producing really crisp, clean, cold water for the city. Um, it, was, it, it, it obviously was a source of life for Colossae, and, and it was one of the best places to get good, crisp, cool. This is Not that slide. That's the next one, Carter. Well, we'll get to that in a second. You might as well just leave it up. So... Um, so they produced this crisp, life-giving water in Colossae. Now, in Heropolis, it was a, a, a different story. Nope, go back. Go back. That one. We'll stay there for now. In Heropolis, uh, it was a different story. They also, their feature was all, also had to do with water, but for an entirely different reason. So in Colossae, this cold, cool, cool water would flow into the city, get, producing life in that way. In Heropolis, what you had is a, you had a number of hot springs. So that is a hot spring. You can actually see the steam coming off of it. A natural hot spring um, that was also really helpful to their particular society uh, because it was a place you could bathe. It was a place that had good, solid mineral water that was healthy and good for you. And so you would travel to Heropolis for that particular thing. So Colossae, 10 10 miles to the northwest, and Heropolis, 6 miles to the south, are both known for their different kinds of water. One, known for its beautifully cold, crisp water, The other for its naturally hot water. Now, you might already be able to see how this is relating to our passage from today, right? But Laodicea has neither. Uh, So they needed to bring water from somewhere else. In order for them to thrive, they needed to to pipe it in. And they do that through a series of aqueducts. That's the next picture. So they built pipes from... Uh, In their case, they had to decide which way they wanted to go. Do they want to go to Colossae for their water, or do they want to go to Heropolis? Well, Heropolis is four miles closer than Colossae, and so they chose to go there first. They were going to build aqueducts from Heropolis to Laodicea and bring in the water that started out in those natural hot springs. Now, obviously, if you pipe in water from a hot spring, it doesn't stay hot. It, It starts out hot. And then as it goes down the pipes for the six-mile journey, it becomes lukewarm. And so when it arrives in Laodicea, it's this lukewarm water. Um, but that's not the only thing that's happening either. As some of you know, and we've already talked about it, hot springs contain a high mineral content. Um, it's more than just regular water. When, usually when a hot spring is bubbling, it has other stuff from the earth that kind of brought it that way. And that was the case here too. And so we travel down these long pipes, and as it did, it would... Those pipes were made out of limestone, and it would actually interact with the... Because the, um, sometimes they were pipes, and sometimes they were just troughs, right? That's how aqueducts work. Um, and so it would, the hard water would interact with the, the piping system, the aqueduct system, to get it to Laodicea. And so when it got there, um, what it would be is it would be this lukewarm water that actually had a really terrible taste to it. Because it would be mineral water that had already reacted with other minerals on the way down. And what it did is it actually was, was gross to drink. It didn't taste good. And it actually even made some people sick. And so Laodicea had to deal with that. But what they found out was that even though it would make some people sick, when you gave it to sheep, we have pictures of their sheep in this next slide too. When you gave it to their sheep, it did something really interesting to the sheep's wool. So, whereas people would get sick because of it, sheep's coats would become incredibly glossy and incredibly soft. And in Laodicea, not only did they have regular sheep, the white kind of sheep there, they also were known for growing these raven black sheep, the one you can see there on the left. And so they had this special kind of sheep that produced this special kind of black wool. They gave it the mineral water that came from Heropolis. And what happened was you got this beautifully black, shiny, soft wool that, wasn't, that, was, that you couldn't find anywhere else in the world. It created an industry for them that was unique and special and became the rage of ancient Rome. Anybody who was anybody had to wear the black wool from uh, Laodicea. And so it created this massive industri- industry In Laodicea. Laodicea. And so they were left with a choice then. Do you fix the piping so you can get clean drinking water? Do you build a new aqueduct from Colossae so you can get this nice, cold, crisp water for your people? Or do you keep it in the way that it is that's not pleasant for people but makes you a ton of money because your sheep produce this beautiful wool? Well, the city chose to bolster their growing economy rather over the health of their people. Remember, they'd just recently been passed over by Tiberius for being too poor. So that's obviously playing in their minds as well. Their people might be getting sick, but their economy flourished. It boomed. It went gangbusters. We said at the beginning Laodicea sits on an intersection of two major highways. It's a good strategic trade route which allowed them to then operate as a hub for, all, for, all of the, for many Roman trade routes. So the city before this, the, one of the reasons that they were mediumly prominent before the whole wolf thing was that they were bankers. So you could, you could bank with them on the intersection of the trade route. But now they have something else to add to the equation. They were already a fairly successful city with their banking, But now they have this beautiful black wool that can just raise them up um, to a whole different level. And so they become a major textile hub um, in the the ancient world. And like I had already said, it became the fashion of the day. So people would travel from all over the world to get this beautiful black wool. Um, And if you were anybody with any kind of prominence, you needed to get some for yourself. So the city becomes incredibly wealthy. So Only a few years after they were passed over for being too poor, now they're one of the biggest economic centers in the ancient world. What this did for them is it created this kind of independent self-pride because they were able to say, we're now incredibly wealthy and we did it on our own. We didn't do it because Tiberias pumped a bunch of money into our city so that we could build all this amazing stuff. We did it because we worked hard and figured it out and succeeded on our own. And so the city gains this local pride, so much so that they actually minted their own coins. So we have a picture of one of those, too. i to throw that up on this slide. Remember when we were looking at Domitian back in, the, in Ephesus, we said, if you want to get a message out in the ancient world, you didn't have Twitter, you didn't have the internet, you didn't have email, you, had, you didn't have newspapers, so how do you get a message about your message out to the masses? You mint coins. It tells your story to the world. It says, I'm prominent, I have a story to tell, and I want you to hear it because you knew that people would trade those coins and then read the messages on them. Not many cities minted their own coins, but Laodicea did because they wanted the world to know we made it, and we made it on our own, and we want you to know who we are, and so we are going to tell you through coin. Now, this sense of independence and self-reliance went deep, along with their resentment for being passed over by Tiberius. So much so that in 60 A.D., a massive earthquake hits the tri-city area. Remember the three cities we talked about earlier. Now, Revelation was written about 90 A.D., just to kind of keep those two dates in your mind. Now, this earthquake does a massive amount of damage to all three of those cities in the area. Nero, who was the emperor at the time, offers Laodicea money to help them rebuild, right? Because, again, they've become a prominent player on the world stage. Now, out of their pride, though, they're being offered money from the emperor of Rome. They reject it. They tell him to keep his money. So they don't need it. They want to rebuild on their own, and they do. As Laodicea continues to grow, it becomes more independent and also becomes more self focused. They use their resources to rebuild their city, but what we know from history is that they completely ignore their neighbors. That tri city coalition that had formed begins to shake and break. We actually see in history that the city of Colossae, which we talked about earlier, it's the same city that the book of Colossians is written to. We know from history that Colossae actually ticked off Nero. So Nero had offered Laodicea money to rebuild, and he intentionally and specifically skips Colossae, tells them they're on their own because they made him angry. If you know anything about Nero, you make him angry and bad things happen. Well, that's the case here too. So Colossae is in ruins. They're barely surviving. Laodicea is thriving, and they don't do anything to help. As far as we can tell, this earthquake was probably the end of the city of Colossae. It doesn't end right away, but it slowly diminishes until it is no more. Now we know, even from the book of Colossians, that at one point, the relationship between Laodicea and the church in Colossae had been good. We actually see it in Colossians 4, verse 12. Epaphras who is one of you and served of Christ Jesus, sends his greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas sends his greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nymphia and to the church in their house. After this letter has been read to you, see to it that also is read to the church of Laodiceans so that you may turn and read the letter from Laodicea. So we see there have been a relationship here in the church at one point. Paul actually encourages them to to stay connected in that way. But we know from history that Laodicea rebuilds and it continues to grow both in wealth and influence in the Roman world. It's likely by the time that Revelation is written, Laodicea has a population around 120,000, which is a fairly large ancient city. So by 90 AD, they had achieved everything they wanted. They were no longer the city that would get passed over by Tiberius or whoever the current, in this case, Domitian, but you get what I'm saying. They're not going to be passed over by an emperor. And actually, they didn't even care if they did because they were self-made and they were a powerful city. And so with all of that in mind, let's look again at John's letter to Laodicea. To the angel in the church of Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true, the witness and the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you were neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. All of a sudden, the passage reads a little bit differently, doesn't it? It says, I know your deeds, Laodicea. Water is good, like the springs of Heropolis. There's a lot of positive benefits you can get for that, but you're not that. You're not like the hot water of Heropolis. Cold water is also good. The cold water of Colossae brings life, but you're not that either. You're the lukewarm water, which is a loaded statement for Laodicea. This would have made them squirm a little. And honestly, when we actually look at it, it's probably going to make us squirm a little too. Essentially, what Revelation is saying is, Laodicea, warm water is good, cold water is good, but you've chosen your crummy sickness producing lukewarm water, the water that's reacted with the limestone that makes people sick. Sure, it sustains life. Sure, it's made you wealthy, but it also hasn't made you physically healthy. In other words, you've chosen the values of Rome, of empire, of wealth, at the cost of your faithfulness to God and your people's health. You chose wealth over health, and that makes Jesus sick, he says. That's why he wants to spew them out of his mouth. Now, in order to understand that correctly, we're not talking about salvation here. We haven't been talking about that every week where we talked about either removing a lampstand or whatever it may be. You see, John's writing to this group of churches and each of these churches that were looked at each week has held a prominent, significant significant position in the early church hierarchy. And so what it's saying here is not that these people lose their salvation. What he's saying is that you have a prominent place. You have been brought up into a space to lead other churches around you and you've screwed it up. You're not doing the things that you ought to do. And if you don't fix that, you're going to be removed from that position of prominence. You're going to be spewed out of the mouth. You're going to lose your lampstand, whatever it might be. Which is actually really ironic for Laodicea, isn't it? Ironically, they were at risk of giving up their position in the church for their position in the Roman Empire. That's the dichotomy that Laodicea has. You were a prominent, significant church in the early church space, and you could have that, but you're at risk of losing that because what you've you've chosen to pursue being prominent and significant in the Roman Empire. The passage goes on. It says, "You, You say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. We've seen that Laodicea had achieved all they wanted to in the Roman world. They believed that they were rich, important, self reliant. And as a result, their arrogance had won the day. They they may have everything Rome said was important. but But in the course of achieving that, they've sacrificed what Jesus had called them to. John says, You're bragging about your wealth while the brothers and sisters around you are dying, where a needs your help and you're not giving it. See, this to me is where it hit home for me. It's a tough, tough thing to hear. See, I grew, up this, I grew up believing that this message was about being all in or all out. Otherwise, God might reject me. It's not that. We can see that. But what it does say might actually be harder to hear and harder to wrestle with, I think. See, the church of Laodicea had sacrificed the things of Jesus for the things of Rome. Wealth over health, influence over charity, self-reliance and safety over an interdependence, even if that's risky. And I wondered, as I was thinking about that, wonder where we've done some of the same. Where we've either individually or or all, where we've sacrificed some of that either individually or or on our own or our personal life or collectively even as our church or Harbor Life, or even further back as just the church in America altogether, where have we gained the things of empire at the cost of the gospel? Now, I just want to acknowledge that as I'm speaking that out right now, I understand I'm walking on a tightrope. I get it. I feel convicted, um, and I did while I was Uh, while I I was preparing this message, too. I I know it's uncomfortable, and I understand um, that many of you might be as well. And it'd be really easy for us right now to hear what I just said through a bunch of different lenses. And I just want to be clear, this isn't a criticism of a political party or an ideology as a whole. It's not a declaration that America's evil or something like that. But I do think there's a reason that this passage stirs up an, an uncomfortableness inside of us. And I want to encourage you to wrestle with that. Also, if you're listening to that and you're starting to get angry with me, I understand that as well. (laughs) Let's talk about that, though. Before we do anything crazy, let's sit down, let's have coffee, let's talk about it. I'd love to hear where you're coming from. I'd love to have a discussion about it. But what this passage is saying, and there's no way to avoid it, is it's asking the church of Laodicea where you've sacrificed the gospel for the sake of empire, for the sake of wealth, for the sake of the thing that Rome says is important, and unfortunately, that trend hasn't ended in the modern era. There are areas in which we've sacrificed some of the things that we know the gospel is calling us to for the sake of American values. I'm not going to name what those are. You'll have to wrestle with that on your own. But it's a convicting thing. It was for the church of Laodicea. It had to be hard for them to hear. They had achieved everything that the world told them was good and right. And John is saying it's not. You think you're rich, but you're actually not. You think you're clothed beautifully, but you're actually naked. But there is hope. It goes on to say, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and, and, while, and, and, white, and have white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and, put salve, and have salve to put on your eyes so you can see. See, I love how John puts this. First, he says, trade your Roman gold for godly gold. The wealth that you created, and I get that's, he means that metaphorically. There's not actually godly gold out there somewhere. But he's saying, you may have wealth in this world, but you're poor in what matters. In other words, what have you, what have we valued, where have we valued worldly wealth at the cost of the godly life? Stop chasing more money and use your money to advance the kingdom, he's saying to Laodicea and to us. Second, Laodicea is known for their black wool, and God says, "I'll give you white clothes." You may have the biggest textile industry in the world, but He says, "But you're naked," which forces them to ask the question: Where have we put our industry, or our career, or our job ahead of the things that God has called us to? We may be wearing a fancy suit, but we're—but are we still naked? He's calling Laodicea to use their industry to advance the kingdom. Finally, we didn't talk about this part, but Laodicea actually also had a thriving medical community as well. There was, uh, they had produced a, a, a commodity, um, a powder that was called, um, I don't even know if I can pronounce it, calria. Well, anyway, it was a, doesn't matter exactly what it was pronounced, but it was this healing eye salve. And it actually worked really, really well. It was, we have record of a, of a doctor named, um, this is another hard one, Demothenes. Sure. He was from Laodicea. Uh, he actually wrote a guide on ophthalmology um, that would guide the medical community for the next 1,100 years, which is a long time. It was, the, the salve that was produced in Laodicea ended up being sold all over the world. It was a big deal, and we have a lot of record of it. And yet, John says, even though you have this thriving medical community, you're blind. He's challenging their community to ask the question, where have we put the things we produce, the things we do, our accomplishments ahead of the things that God's asked us to do? You realize as we look at the city of Laodicea, these have, are incredibly hard questions. They're uncomfortable They're going to force them to wrestle with the very things they'd have been striving striving for for years. See, it's easy to put the things that our society values ahead of the things that God does. It's happened regularly and repeatedly throughout history. And in many ways, it's still happening today. We live in an amazing place with so many great things around us. We live in one of the greatest countries that's ever existed, and we need to be careful that we don't let those great things overtake the thing, the person that actually produces life. It's easy to fall into that trap, and we've seen people do it throughout history, and we have to ask ourselves are we doing the same? It's hard to hear, but John also closes with something really beautiful. He says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, it opens the door. I will come and I will eat with them and they with me. To those who are victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my Father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, I grew up believing that if I wasn't all in, if I had become lukewarm, then God was going to spit me out. And that's a terrible thought. I hope you haven't had to wrestle with that same fear. That was, it was a hard one for me growing up. Because look at the invitation at the end. The Laodicean church had made their mistakes. We just saw all of, all of those. They had sacrificed the kingdom life for a Roman one, and, and God cares about that. He didn't like that. He was angry about it. Why, though, is the question. And the answer is because he knew it was actually hurting them. That the life that they had pursued wasn't leading them to the thing that they desired at all. The actor Jim Carrey once said I think everyone should become rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. See, Laodicea was rich and destitute. They had the finest fabric in the world, but they were naked. They had the best salve, and yet they were blind. And so, because God loves them, because he wants what's best for them, because he sees their pain and their hurt and he cares about it, because of all that, he calls calls them out on the areas that they're messing up. Which isn't actually a hard concept for us to wrap our minds around, because it's what we do with our kids. We discipline them, we rebuke them so that they'll stop doing the things that hurt them, right? God calls Laodicea to repentance, which we've talked about before. To repent simply means to turn. God's saying, what you're doing is hurting you. I know you can't see it, but it is. So turn, come back. He's saying there's a best way to do things and you're heading in the wrong direction so let's redirect, let's repent, let's turn and start going back towards the way that I want you to live because it's the best for you. So if you're sitting here this morning realizing that there are things in your life that are hurting you, things in your life that you have put before the way of God and you found emptiness in them, hear what God says to Laodicea in this letter He says, turn and come back. See, there's a difference between guilt and conviction. Guilt is something the enemy uses often. He's saying, you've missed your mark and there's no way back. Guilt is this idea that I've screwed up and there's nothing I can do to fix it. That's not what God does. God uses conviction. What he says is, you've messed up. You're not where you ought to be. And so please come back. Incredibly different. I absolutely love verse 20. God has pointed out the failure of Laodicea, and yet he says, here I am. I haven't gone anywhere. I've actually been standing just knocking on the door waiting for you to let me in. As soon as you let me in, we're going to have dinner together. We're going to have a meal. We'll pick up right where we left off, which is an incredibly beautiful image, isn't it? Drastically different than being spewed out of your mouth for being a little bit stuck in the middle. You see, it's easy to fall into the Laodicean trap. Especially when we live in one of the richest countries that's ever existed on the planet. It's easy to value the things around us, the things that society says more, that are important. It's easy to chase them. Because, especially because a lot of them actually aren't bad in and of themselves. But we need to be aware of how easy it is to value those things above the things of God. Because when we do that, they lose any value at all and only become emptiness. See, look how John closes the letter. He says, To those who are victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each and every week, I think the closing line of these letters is the most brilliant. Because what had Laodicea been striving for this whole time? They've been striving for in, in, to be important and significant in the Roman world, right? They were striving to, to get rid of that foul taste of being passed over by Tiberius. And what does John say to him? He says, you desire to be great. And that's a good thing, but if, but turn towards God in that desire. You may then sacrifice your importance in the Roman world, sure. But if you pursue God, look what it says. He says, You will sit with me on my throne. Saying you've been chasing after significance in the Roman world where you could have actually sat on the throne of God alongside of Jesus. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? You want to be important. How about actually sitting on the throne of God instead of everything else? What John is declaring is that importance isn't found in wealth or in position or in product. Just like each and every week, John is saying, I've seen the throne. And Domitian isn't on it. Artemis isn't on it. Asclepius isn't on it. Mammon wealth isn't on it. Jesus is on it, and you're invited to come join him on it as well. In just a second here, we're going to take communion. A communion is the declaration of just that. That, we, that we've seen the throne and we realize that Jesus is on it and that he's invited us into the kind of life that he desires for each of us, a life that's better than anything the world has to offer. Not the easiest, always. Sometimes it's harder. Many times it's harder. And yet, we can chase all the things of the world and find them empty. And what Jesus has said is when you come to my table, when you realize that my way is the way that produces and leads to life, you realize I want to be there with you. See, communion is the practice of admitting to ourselves that we all have brokenness in our lives, that we've all messed up in one way or another like the Laodicean church had. It's the declaration that we need Christ in our lives and the declaration that we need each other too at the shared table. See, each of us has fallen short in one way or another, but communion is a reminder that our failure is not what defines us in Christ. Communion is a reminder that Christ has defeated death and because of that, sin is no longer our master. And so communion is the invitation to affirm or reaffirm our acceptance of that gift in our lives. And so our table is open to anyone who wants to accept the gift of Christ and either for the first time and begin following it now or just reaffirm it today. And so just a few minutes, I'm going to invite you to come up front and come this way. We do have a gluten-free table on the outside there as well. Um, You can take one um, plate, Um, you can either share it as a family or or whatever that looks like, but take it, grab it, take it back to your seats and uh, and do it there, reflecting on it. At the table, Paul writes in in the book of Colossians, says, In the church... Here, there is no Gentile or Jew. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and is in in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Now hear these words from Luke twenty-two fourteen through 20. When the time came, Jesus and an apostle sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning has been fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat it, remember me. Likewise, he took the cup. He says, this is my blood, a sign of a new covenant given for you, shed on your behalf. When you drink it, remember me. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just want to open today by just recognizing that in some ways, in some places of our lives, we've put the things of this world things of our culture, the things of comfort, whatever it may be, ahead of the things you desire for us. We just want to repent of that. We just want to acknowledge that it exists. God, we pray for your conviction in the areas in which we've done that, in which we've sacrificed what we know is good and right because it's harder for the things that are easier and fleeting. God, we also pray for the assurance that you are standing at the door knocking. That no matter how badly we've messed it up, that you're right there waiting to start with us again. Give us wisdom to know where and when to turn so that we can walk into the fullness of life and sit with you on your throne. Amen.